Hello, and welcome to the first episode of Supply Chain Saga. I'm Mark Taylor, the co-founder and CEO of Warehouse Republic, a third-party logistics company that specializes in e-commerce. Today, I'm interviewing BJ Patterson. BJ is the founder and CEO of Pacific Mountain Logistics, a full-service 3PL located in San Bernardino, California. BJ is highly respected in the industry, and I'm excited to have him on the show. So let's get started. Yeah, they've made getting into podcasting and everything like that extremely, I mean, very, very easy. That's it's really cool. I wouldn't even know where to start. Yeah. So a little bit of the fun little, like, I mean, they've even got this thing set up to like have intro music. <laughs> little, little noises. So that's how they do all that stuff. Yeah. I like that. Yeah, it's funny. It's good. Yeah. <laughs> Got a lot of all, all the good stuff. Oh my gosh, that's but crazy. This one, it runs off of a little micro SD card in the back. And then uh, it allows you to set just basically everything. I mean, you can... You that can, is so cool. Yeah. So anyway, well, let's get going. Uh, Great. Thank you for being here. I'm happy we're able to Thanks make this Thanks for happen. having me. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, let's go ahead and start with, just go ahead and introduce yourself. Hi, I'm uh, BJ Patterson. I'm the CEO and founder of Pacific Mountain Logistics. Uh, we're a third-party logistics company based in San Bernardino, California, the Inland Empire logistics mecca of the universe. Yep. Uh, I would also say the best operator I have the the, <laughs> the, the pleasure of knowing and well, meeting. Thank you. I, yeah. I'll, I'll thank you for that. The um, you know, I mean, it's it's kind of funny. I always say that, uh, you know, you don't find logistics, logistics finds you. You know, I, not too many kids are sitting there in their high school class saying, man, I can't wait to be a logistician someday. Right. And then all of a sudden, wow, 32 years later, you know, you're like the old man on the block. <laughs> so with that said, how did it find you? Where, like, It's really funny. It um, has a temp job. You know, it's, it's really true. You know, I had um, I'd gotten out of the military, had done some other stuff, and uh, quite frankly, I was going through a divorce and was trying to, I was lining up another job, you know, it was going to take me back overseas, and and, um, and and a friend called me and said, hey, uh, could you help me out? The guy I was in the service with and called me up and said, can you help me out? I said, what's that? And he said, I need you to work in a warehouse for me. Warehouse? I don't know anything about a warehouse. I mean, you know, my vision of a warehouse at that time was some tin building with a bunch of diesel foreclosures running around in it. And long story, but uh, he uh, he talked me into it. I went and talked to him. It was Target, their Fontana 1.3 million square foot distribution center in Fontana, California. Um, and uh, they needed someone to work uh, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday night. He said, hey, you, you're divorced. You don't have a life. So, <laughs> so I said, you know, why don't you work those nights? I said, well, well I'm never going to have a life if I work those nights. Oh, it's just a temp job, just four months. Right. So uh, four months turned into six years and and uh, kind of got me addicted to the whole logistics thing. 1.3 million square feet. And this is what, 1989, 1990? No, 92. 92? So 1.3 million back in that time was as big. It was as big. It was, there was no, it was one of the few million square footers on the West Coast at the time. There were a few, but not very many. I mean, you could count them on 
two hands at the most. I mean, there just weren't very many around. They and and they all had names like Target or Walmart, Kmart on them. That's the really that's the only ones that had those bigger buildings at the time. It was and and you know it's kind of funny too is that we had and we bragged that we had eighteen miles of conveyor you know in there and so um yeah in 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 today's environment I mean. It's just it was so arcane. But at the time, it was state of the art. Everything we were doing was state of the art stuff. And and uh, it's kind of funny to go look at today's warehouses. And you know, while they've changed in some aspects, some aspects are exactly the same. They haven't changed at all. What would give me some of the? This has really changed. This has not changed at all. Well, if you go to your your what I would call your shipper warehouses, right? Your targets warehouses, you know. Uh, the thing that hadn't changed is the sorting and, and the way they manage that. Uh, the things that have changed is much more flow through inventory, not as much stock inventory. You know, obviously the pandemic taught us that maybe they should stock a little more. But uh, I mean, yes, I mean, it's much more flow through, much more just in time today than it was back then. Back then, where it was primarily pool stock mostly going to stock and then pulling from stock to fulfill and, and, you know, to supply the stores. Whereas now it is, you know, very little pulls from stock. Majority of it just comes in on truck, goes straight out. Mm. And so the ultimate storage end up ending up being the retail location itself. Yeah. And so it's like, that's kind of your store. And actually, if they, I mean, if they, you know, if they work it the way they would love it, the store is the the ship that it's on, the truck that it's on. You know, that transition is the storage. And, you know, just think of it as a pipe, right? So that supply chain, everybody calls it a supply chain. And they're really the, the best terminology would be the supply pipe. Think of it as a pipe. And they're constantly feeding the one end of the pipe. And you're hoping that the flow out the other end is the same flow that sales, it's at the rate of sales. So... Um, ideally, you know, the, the pipe, this, this flow, that's your storage, ideally. Now, again, that works great until there's a disruption, a pandemic, maybe, you know. Sure. It just so happens to happen. And so now you've got this pandemic and now, oh my gosh, I don't have anything in storage and everybody wonders why, oh my gosh, we're out of everything. Well, because we didn't really plan. Because... You can kind of take that back to 2008, you know, when the Lehman Brothers, everything went off the cliff in 2008. All these retailers got caught with so much inventory. They became inventory shy. So what was, quote unquote, just in time, which really wasn't, we, we jokingly said just became just late. Everything now is just late. I mean, <laughs> so in, and to some degree, you know, prior to 2008, uh, retailers had a very, very low tolerance for out of stock. I mean, that's all they focused on. They didn't care what it cost them. They didn't want a bare shelf in a store. Now you go to stores today, you know, with, with a few exceptions, but not many. And you see the amount of inventory in the stores is so much lower. And, and they have a much higher tolerance to out of stocks because then they just direct you to your website. You know, just buy it online. You don't have it here today. So they've, cut down the number of SKUs in the stores and they've limited their inventory in stores and pushed that back upstream to these warehouses that were sitting half empty. 
And now they've pushed that back upstream and trying to force people to buy online and buy through that channel rather than through the store. Hmm. So it's interesting. So when you think of it as the pipe, then the container ship is a part of the storage. Mm-hmm. The sortation warehouse is a part of the storage. The trucks taking it from the warehouse. It's yeah, part of the storage. All, so that actually becomes, it's like it, the entire thing. Think of it as your rolling warehouse. Right. right. The ship, it's, a store, it's your storage. It's the container on that vessel. You know, that's all storage. It's temporary storage. Right. So backing up a little bit, how did we go, how'd you go from four months to four years, and then a career? Well, I mean, I think the, you know, a couple of things. First off, I think logistics is addicting. You know, if, yeah. Particularly if you're a problem solver. If you like to solve problems, logistics is an awesome way to do it. I mean, that's what you do. As a, you know, if you're working in warehousing or trucking or any other aspects of it, you're constantly solving problems. Mm-hmm. And the ones that the person that is most successful is the one that can solve the most problems. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, working at Target, I just became addicted to this problem solving. And I was successful. I, you know, I got promoted quite a bit there. And then I did the unthinkable and worked with Walmart after that, which is almost like, you know, an American going to work or actually more like a Soviet going to work for America. I think that's the way they looked at it. <laughs> you know, I got some Soviet spy because they used to work for Target. How many, how many years was it before you could uh, go back to your Target colleagues and have a polite cup of coffee? Um, it, it was the Walmart people that treated me crappy, very frankly. The Target people are like, like, man, those guys are weird over there. But yeah, they, the Walmart people, I was worried. They kept th- acting like I was still with Target or something. Like I was there to steal their secrets. And, um, but, uh, you know, you, you worked at retail, you know, but I always had an entrepreneurial bent to me. You know, I like that. And, 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 and you can only go so far in corporate logistics, you know, Walmart, Target. You know, they, you know, in order to keep things consistent throughout the organization, look, here's how we do it. Don't change it. And that just didn't fit me. So I got myself into the third party side of it, you know, the, you know, working for NFI. And, and that's when you learn the entrepreneurial side of it, you know, how to, how to make money at this and how to solve those problems, but do it in a profitable way rather than just solving them to solve them. So what was it like going from the behemoth of, like you said, the corporate logistics where, look, you know, you're going to get promoted if you execute our process better than anybody else executes the process Mm -hmm. uh, to then getting, were you recruited to NFI? Okay. So then being recruited into this entrepreneurial environment and they say, okay, we want you to help look for how to do this better. Yeah, it's it's so much better. You know, I, I look back and... And uh, it's just so much more fun. Yeah. You know, it, it's, uh, you know, I was very fortunate. I worked for a, a big uh, 3PL that, uh, you know, gave me a lot of latitude. You know, they did. I mean, they intended, they expected everyone, particularly at my level, to be entrepreneurial and to look for ways and how to do it better and how to do it, you know, uh, more cost effectively and, and quite frankly, how to how to get revenue out of it, how to how to do that. And the other thing is, you know, you go to even though you know the company that Inify, you know, who I was working for, I mean, it was a big company, but still, you, they got you involved, and you were able to get involved in all kinds of other aspects of the business that typically at a corporate, you know, it's either your job or it's not your job, right? Right. It's like corporate real estate. 
You know, they, have, they have real estate people. They would never, ever, ever talk to an operator about a real estate solution. Whereas you go to 3PL and like, hey, we need another building. Well, you better go find one. <laughs> you know? Yeah. You know what I mean? You, you, they, you know, you learn about leases. You learn about all these other aspects of the business that if you're in that corporate world, you just, you just don't get your, I mean, it's very rare that you get to, get to touch all those different pieces of the deal. Yeah. You know, so, and again, this, you know, you go back to the original thing of problem solving. So, mm-hmm. It takes problem solving to a new level because now you're able to learn how to, you know, make things again profitable. I mean, and and entrepreneurial and, and learn new ways to create revenue, revenue streams and and look for new new problems to solve. And and now you're working with clients. Okay, how can I help this client? I mean, the best way to make money is to be is to make your client look like a hero. Mm-hmm. Right. So you look at that, whoever you're dealing with, the VP of logistics of, for a company or the purchasing, whoever they are, if you approach every day, it was my goal is to make that guy a hero in his company, then I'm golden. You know, I'm golden with them. Uh, and now every time he has a problem, he calls me. I become the subject matter expert. He calls me. And every time he calls me with a problem, that's a potential revenue stream for me. Mm-hmm. You know, he don't want him calling a consultant. I don't want him calling somebody else. I want him to call me. Right. You know, call NFI, call BJ, call, you know, and and say, look, I want to, you know, I, I have this problem. How do I solve it? And you say, okay, I got this. I, you know, I can call my trucking partners. I can call this guy. I can call that guy. We got this for you. Don't worry about it. So when you're dealing with somebody inside a company, like let's say it's a, somebody in purchasing, somebody at the, you know, VP of supply chain ops, whatever it may be in a larger company. And it's like, your goal is to make them look good. Do you, does it alter when you're actually speaking with the owner and the owner is, you know, it's, it's not about looking good. It's about making the business better. Well, I mean, I think that, you know, if you take that same attitude with the owner, look, now my goal is not to make you look good. My goal is to make your business run better. Right. And look, I'm, my goal is to, you know, look, it, you know, the, I think Warren Buffett said, you know, pigs get fat, hogs get slaughtered, right? So, look, my goal is to reduce your costs. Okay, that may reduce a little bit of my revenue, but my long-term goal here is to be, you know, indispensable to you. Mm-hmm. And if I become indispensable to you, then long-term, I'm going to make a lot more money than trying to just get fat off of one or two deals, right? So, that owner needs to know that I'm there looking out for his best interest. Right. And if I'm looking out for his best interest, he's going to keep coming back to me. And by the way, you know, owners sometimes open other companies or, or this purchasing manager skips and goes to another job. When he gets that other job, first thing he's going to do is going to call me. Mm-hmm. Say, hey, BJ, can you help me out over here? I need to look like a hero at my new job. Right. And I know BJ makes me look like a hero. You know, and so if you take that approach that, like, your job is to make them look good. You know, it's not to to get over on them. It's not to... You know, try and, you know, you have to wine and dine people. You just have to, you know, sometimes it's no no more complicated than just doing what you said you're going to do. Right. Right. You don't have to overcomplicate it. But but knowing that that guy can call you and trust you, that you're going to do everything you can to make, you know, better for him. Yep. That's what matters. And not that you're going to, you know, gorge him. He knows, he's not going to call you if you're going to gouge him every time, you know, he comes to you and you're going to, Try to get rich off of every deal. It's the long-term vision. Look, long-term, I got to be there for you. 
Right. So I, there's an interesting, um, like the way you came up, you mentioned military service. Mm-hmm. And I feel like what, what really helps, uh, probably helped you in that, uh, in the corporate. I mean, obviously you're very smart, capable, hardworking, but there's also that kind of like fitting within the mold and doing things as they're supposed to be done. Certainly was probably pretty finely honed at the time coming out of the military. Mm-hmm. And so you have these nice, you know, this kind of, it really does make sense to go from, you know, military service up to corporate where, uh, logistics, corporate warehousing. And then now you make the jump um, to this more entrepreneurial role. What is it like? So what were the things that, you know, there's this saying, it's like, what got you, what got you uh, here won't get you there. Right. Yeah. So what was the thing, what were the things that you had to change, not only in your thinking, but what were some of the key, like, how did you become good at logistics? Because obviously before that you were good at logistics, but also at logistics while following orders. And then now in kind of this newer role, certainly you have a, a, a direction that you're going, but. Well, yeah. you know, I think it's, um, you know, and I would say it's to anybody, it's a willingness to learn and listen, right? You got to, you know, a, a mentor of mine many years ago said, you got to wake up every morning trying to know what you don't know, mm. right? So if you know what you don't know and you're willing to go out and ask questions and, and listen and, 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 and learn from everybody, I mean, you know, there's so many different aspects to logistics. And I've been very fortunate to have been sometimes dropped in the deep end of water in some of those different forms, whether it's uh, drayage or long haul trucking or LTL trucking or or warehousing and e-commerce fulfillment. I mean, there's so many different aspects. And, sure. and I think the, the, the true person wants to be successful has to be, you know, first off, know that they don't know it, admit to the, that you don't know it, and then go seek out and find the guy that does know or a gal that does know and ask them and learn from them. You know, I think that's the thing. And I, I think that, if you want to be successful and you want to take that next leap, you have to be a, you know, I call it a learner for life, right? You got to always want to learn something new. And that's where I've been very fortunate. Very fortunate. Sometimes, you know, I was just dropped in the deep end. Hey, here this is, figure it out. You know, and then on some cases, you know, it was, you know, leases. You know, I sat next to my boss and he walked through a lease with me and said, okay, here's, here's a guy who's been doing it for most of his life. And, He's walking me through. This is what you look for. This is what you. You're, this is the watchouts. Here you go. Here you go. And you got to soak that in. You got to you know take that and run with it. Uh, trucking, you know, got dropped off and hey, you need, you're in charge of this terminal now. What? What, <laughs> what do you mean? I you know what the heck a terminal is. And so you go in there and you leverage the people that are working there and you don't you go in there too big for your britches and. And know, admit what you don't know, and and ask questions, and you find that most of these people love teaching you. You know, I mean, I've sat with dispatchers and say, I don't know how, I don't know how the hell you do this. Show me, and they'll show you. They they're proud of what they do, and and just be willing to be humble and talk to them and learn from them. And it's awesome. It's so again, that's I think that's what I love about this industry. Is there's, I mean, there's something new to learn every day, mm-hmm. every day, and every from, day. Yeah. And and from anybody, uh, you know, you don't know who it is. It's like I love touring warehouses. It's I'm a total warehouse nerd. I love touring warehouses because I can't recall ever touring a warehouse, no matter what size. I didn't see something went. Oh, that's a pretty damn good idea. I like that. And it's usually something that somebody there on the floor came up with, or 
some supervisor came up with. It's not some crazy wazoo engineering thing. It's some simple thing that some warehouse you know worker or person just said, here's a better way to do it. And you see that and go, well, that's a good idea. I mean, and, and I can't remember walking to the warehouse, but I see at least one thing go, oh, that's a good idea. <laughs> you know, and, and so there's always something to learn if you approach it from that. You know, it's like, you know, I, I think the biggest leap for me was when I leapt out of even the 3PO world and started my own company, right. you know, because you just don't know how many hats there are to wear until right. all of a sudden you got to wear all of them. Yep. You know, you, I think, you know, particularly, you know, I was VP level kind of guy and had been for a number of years and, and you, you forget that what you're relying on all these different people that are, you know, doing these ancillary, you know, functions all around you, mm-hmm. making your life better every day. And then you go into the you know, true entrepreneurial world where it's now it's you. There is no, I don't have a risk manager handling all the insurance stuff. Yep. You You're, don't have an HR person. You don't have. Right. A legal. I mean. You might not do all your legal, but you're doing a lot more legal than you were beforehand. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you're reading through all your contracts. You're doing the HR piece to the extent that you can, or finding the person who can do it, understanding what how to coach them. It's it's everything. It's wearing a bunch of hats. It's a bunch of hats, and and um, and also, you know, you find those things that uh, throughout your career you never really did get into. Right. Like I was a career operator. I was a career operator my entire career. I was never a sales guy, mm-hmm. never once. I mean, I had sales guys that reported to me at different points in, in my career, but I was never the sales guy. And now, guess what? I'm the sales guy. So I do want to back up because this is an interesting thing. It's like it's it's you start of being exactly what you said, that operator. You know, you're you're kind of marching in line and then you get a little more entrepreneurial and then you just full on go and do the entrepreneurship thing. Right. How, like, what was it? When did you start feeling like, I'm going to do this? I, I, I'm going to do this for myself. Uh, were there any stops between NFI and other logistics companies? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think that like a, probably a million guys out there, you start noodling on a business plan. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't even remember the first year I did it, but, you know, probably five or six years before I started the company, I started, you know, on my off hours, sitting around noodling on a business plan, putting a business plan together because I'm thinking I'm figuring this out. And wow, if I can make money for, you know, someone else, why couldn't I do this for myself? You know, so, you know, and always say that <clears throat> I think a lot of times it just has to be that impetus, that thing that pushes you off the edge, right? Mm-hmm. So you have this business plan, you've been dreaming about it and thinking about it like a lot of guys do, you know, and then I left. And if I worked, went to work for a private equity firm and, um, you know, I, it was just one of those things that, uh, you know, circumstances led it. You know, I was traveling 99.9% of the time. I was working, you know, 100 hours a week. And how was your family uh, It was life, terrible. Right? Terrible. I was <laughs> probably on the verge of divorce. I mean, it was, it was horrible. I mean, it was horrible. And, and then you throw right in the middle of all that, the 2008 crash and, and I'm, you know, run, I'm now big wig. I'm the CEO of this company, and and like, oh my gosh, it's it's nuts. And 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 I'm never home. Yep, I'm never home. I, and I tell this story a lot that, you know, 
I was, it was May of 2009 and uh, I'd been gone for, I don't know, three or four weeks. I'd been gone from home and my wife is uh, on the phone. I'm at the Newark, New Jersey airport. And uh, the, uh, my, my wife's on the phone giving me the play-by-play of my youngest son's baseball game, mm-hmm. his playoff game. And, and uh, you know, he, they win the game and, Oh, hey, babe, I got to run. She hangs up. I, you know, we'll call you later. Hangs up. Everybody, hear everybody screaming and laughing and going crazy in the background. And when she hung up, I said, this sucks. And the guy across from me, I was in the Delta Lounge there. And the guy across from me goes, I agree. I said, did I say that out loud? And he goes, yeah, something sucks. <laughs> you know, and, and honestly, I just that night, it was that, and it was that, that push that, look, I'm, I'm missing out on everything and, and, uh, you know, come on, you, you can do better than this. So I literally stayed up all night long and wrote myself out of a job at my company. I wrote a whole new organizational plan, wrote myself out of a job, you know, presented it to the, the managing partner and my boss and said, you know, I'm just kind of done. And, and 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 to be very fair, they were very good to me, and we worked through it. But uh, that's when I just said, you know, I got to go do something. And then, you know, I went and hiked the Pacific Crest Trail for a while, uh, you know, for a day, and came up with the idea of uh, Pacific Mountain Logistics, and and uh, that's where the name comes from. This hiking on the Pacific Crest Trail. That's cool. And um, yeah, it's kind of you know, it's kind of. Um, been been a roller coaster ride since then, but uh, that was 2009, and so I started the process of putting the company together, and then we were operating in uh, January 2010. What month in 2009? That was May. The, well, the I, I filed all the paperwork in July. Got it. Okay, I, I filed the filed for the DBA and the LLC in July. I got the LLC in September. I think like September 9th. When all the paperwork came back, and then, um, and then I was we were we did our first shipment uh, January second, twenty ten, January fourth, excuse me, January fourth, twenty ten. Yeah, did you raise money, or did you? How did you? No. How did you get it off the ground? Well, uh, originally out of my out of my you know my uh, savings and back pocket, we shoestringed it. You remember this is two thousand nine. Nobody's lending you know anybody anything. Um, uh, then I brought in a partner, um, kind of, I think about February of 2010, I brought a partner in to help. The upside is in, 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 uh, 2009, 2010, if you fog a mirror, they'd lease you a building. You know, they, you know, there was, <laughs> there was building and equipment and stuff around very cheap. And, and part of the impetus too, was I'd read, you know, a million self-help books that talked about you know, businesses that opened up during a recession because the barrier entry, barrier to entry was very low. Yeah. Couldn't have been much lower than it was in 2009. I mean, you talk to somebody about putting something in a warehouse and they would just, you know, they were clamoring to you, you know, I'll take mine, take mine, you know, and, and also talent. I mean, there was a lot of talent around, you know, underutilized or not utilized. And so, Getting quality people was, you know, a, an easier thing. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, it was tough. I mean, we certainly bootstrapped it and, you know, we got some money here and there uh, from, you know, like I said, from my partner, brought some money to the table. But yeah, for the most part, you know, we just 
some loans and a lot of savings and wiping out your 401k and, and, um, you know, and it's, it's worked out. That's outstanding. How do, so <clears throat> comparatively, and I mean, I, I do think there's a lot to be said for, uh, it's a lot easier to start a business when everybody's hungry. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great, uh, mm. it's a great thing. How do you see, so, I mean, we're, you know, depending on which news article you read on any given day today, it's we're headed for doom and gloom. And then, ah, well, maybe it's not as bad as we thought. Uh, you know, we're seeing kind of these real, these kind of big waves, like these, almost like these sign functions going up and down and up <laughs> and right. down uh, right. with what's going on. So how do you, how do you think the, um, the environment is different today than it is in 2008? Um, you know, several things. First off, you know, uh, I think the biggest difference today versus, you know, any other time is that, you know, credit's been tight since 2008, you know, the, the, the freewheeling credit has never really come back. Not like it was 2005, 2006, where, you know, again, if you could, you know, put together coherent sense, it'd loan you a million dollars, you know, <laughs> and, and put you in a house that no, you had no chance of ever really being able to afford and, so, you know, I don't think credit's ever loosened up that much since then. So I don't think you have a bunch of bad credit out there. Um, then you look at the unemployment numbers. Unemployment numbers, I mean, the petition patient rate is still so pathetically low. And there's so many jobs out there. You know, unlike 2008 when, I mean, the, you know, the unemployment rate was double digit and, and climbing, right? Mm-hmm. So, so everybody still has jobs. I mean, so it's not like that's there. You know, housing hasn't fallen off the cliff. And from everything I've read and everyone I've talked to, no one believes it will because inventory is still painfully low. It, we never really recovered from the pandemic. You know, the construction never caught up, you know, due to supply issues and labor issues and, and, and so on. So it's not like there's a big glut of houses out there. So that's not going to cause housing to fall off the cliff. I think it'll... It'll moderate and it'll come down. The interest rates are going to force that that way. And so you back that up into the rest of the economy. Is So the housing market doesn't fall off the cliff. Then, you know, your home improvement stays pretty good because people start to stay put a little bit when housing is expensive and housing still very, you know, pricey. So people stay put. And so they fix up what they have versus buying something new. So that, you know, bodes well for your home improvement, which I think people don't realize how big a chunk that is of the, yeah. the economy. You know, so, you know, uh, people have been pent up. So obviously travel and leisure is doing really well. And, and, and all things point to that. I mean, at some point fuel has to come down. I mean, you know, that's probably the the thing that's causing the most, you know, consternation out there is, you know, travel and leisure would be doing much better if the fuel prices would come down. Oh, I mean, with that said, I mean, I paid below four today at the at the pump down the road, and, and yeah. we're in we're in you know sunny Southern California, and right? So and and yeah. and and gas is diesel staying up there though, and diesel that's is, yeah, and that's that's what has kept the the overall freight rates from coming down dramatically. Is uh, diesel just has been stubborn sticking that, and I just drove across you know half the country and. It's the same price, doesn't matter where you go. Yeah. I mean, 
Diesel's, you know, still in that, you know, mid fives, you mm-hmm. know, uh, all the way across the country. So even in Texas, so, I yeah, it, yeah. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Well, gas was much cheaper in Texas. And gas, I think, was two sixty nine when I left uh, about a week ago. Yeah, yeah, I saw that just two weeks ago in Texas. So, so you know, but so the fuel prices come down. It, it, it bodes well for the you know travel and leisure section. You know, restaurants have you know they've rebounded quite a bit and. And you don't see a lot of that, you know, mitigating. Uh, so, while I do think we're in for you know, a little bit tougher than what we've had, I mean, we've been on a pretty good roll here. <laughs> um, you know, and you're starting to see volume draw back. You know, durable goods and have drawn down, and you've seen some, you know, delay of purchasing. But you know, you you got this artificial spike in 2021, which. You know, it's kind of hard for everybody to understand. I mean, this was not normal. The government threw so much money into the economy and yep. everybody went out and spent like, you know, like a girl getting ready for prom. You know, everybody went and spent so much money. You know, 2020 is a is an arc and uh, 2021, excuse me, is, a, is an anomaly. And, yep. And so, you know, I think the inventory glut is people, people, to the production planning around that 2021 spike and plan based on that and you get into 2022 when things are a little bit back to normal. Right. And now you have this big inventory glut. Yep. Because you just made too much. Yep. Right. It's not that the economy's bad. It's just getting back to normal and all this, you know, government funny money is out of the equation or at least is leaking out of the equation for now, for now. Right. <laughs> and so, you know, once you get that out of the equation, you get back down. I think what we're seeing is just a return more to a normal economy, not yeah, yeah, not a not a off the chart. I mean, supply chains are starting to open up, and so car availability. You know, they're you know, so car prices are coming back down to earth, mm-hmm. and that's just an availability thing. It's not that it's not that oh my gosh, you know, the car market's crashing. No, it's not. It's just now you can actually find a car. Yep. You know, it was an availability issue, not a, you know, so, so all the, to me, I look at it and see all these artificial spikes that were just, you know, ballooning things up are going away and we're, and, and yes, it may be a recession in terms of comparing it to 2021, but let's compare things to 2019. I think that's where you go back and say, let's compare to 2019 and see where it is. And, and I think you're going to see it's still moderate to good, decent growth over 2019 and we're just back down to a more normal pace. That's, that's the way I see it. And, and that's, you know, reading and talking to a lot of people that are way smarter than me. Um, I think that's the, to me, from what I understand, that's the consensus. We're just yeah. going to get back down to a more normal pace. You know, they'll, they'll keep raising the interest rates, which, look, we've gotten a little drunk on cheap money. Yeah, right? absolutely. So the entire world has gotten a little drunk on cheap money. So... You know, if, if the interest rates leak up to eight, nine percent, it's probably not the end of the world. And they'll, you know, get things back kind of steady state and, and they'll come back down. Sure. But we're not seeing the 1980s with 18, 19 percent interest rates. Fortunately. Yeah. Um, so it's interesting because what I'm seeing, and this is bringing it back, I mean, that was an excellent, I think, view of like the macroeconomic trends and everything. And that plays so much into how we, you and I plan for our businesses. Mm-hmm. And so now I'm looking at the Chinese numbers going down for the, for the uh, exports. We're seeing a lot of 
big drops in exports. Uh, we're seeing the Port of California is heralding themselves for getting, uh, you know, they have no container ships waiting. Mm-hmm. Like they're, right. they're, they're on time. And I'm like, oh, I mean, you know, a lot of those got offset to the East Coast, which is, they did. Which is now consequently having issues. Major issues. <laughs> like uh, I think, I haven't, been, I haven't seen recently, but I think Savannah was up 40s, 50s. Yeah, uh, off offshore, waiting to get in. And, and 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 to put things in perspective, forty vessels off of off of Long Beach in LA is two weeks worth of work. Mm-hmm. Forty vessels off of Savannah is about seven weeks worth of work. <laughs> I mean, so I mean, you always got to put things in perspective. I mean, right? Forty vessels off LA Long Beach is really not that big a deal, right? Forty vessels off of Savannah is a huge deal, right? You know, Charleston, even a bigger deal. Yep. You know, so, you know, this diversion, and I've talked to some retailers that did this, that diverted to the East Coast, and they're all re- regretting it because East Coast just can't handle it. I mean, particularly smaller ports. I mean, you get outside of New York, New Jersey, all these other ports are just not, they're landlocked. They don't have the capabilities that you have in Long Beach, LA. And, and so, the product was on the water longer. It cost them more to get there. And now it's hung up. Yeah. You know, I, I'll leave their name out. I talked to a big retailer who says, you know, they estimate maybe 20 to 25% of their Christmas just wasn't even going to make it. Wow. Because they shipped it to the East Coast. You know, and, and that's just, you know, the, that's the, the risk they took. Right. So, uh, you know, and you mentioned this uh, at one of the, the longer, I think it was, two or three times ago we met and you mentioned that what we'll see is we'll see the East coast cooling and that'll cool. And then it'll basically take about a year and then we'll see the West coast start to calm down. Yeah. You still think that's uh, where we're headed? Absolutely. I mean, you know, I always judge. It's funny. You can judge the market by who's calling you. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think for, you know, at least a year there, you know, the, I don't think the real estate guys even had an outbound line. They weren't calling anybody. You know, so now they're calling. They're emailing. They're sending you flyers. You know, you're getting flyers out of Chicago and Kansas City and Phoenix and Dallas and, and a few other areas. You're not seeing a lot still in Southern California. Southern California is still tight and it's going to, quite frankly, I, I, I just think Southern California is going to be tight forever. Yeah. And, I really, you know, I think a lot of people thought that, and me included, I think thought that there'd be a much greater easing of the inventory glut during Christmas than there has been. Um, and yeah, we've got a couple of weeks left to go, but you know, there's really hasn't been much easing, and and uh, there's so much pent up demand here that you know, I was talking to a large real estate guy the other day, and. You know, he's seeing some easing in that 200,000 square foot, you know, to 100, 100 to 200,000 square foot range. He said, but anything over 350 or above, they, they, there is none. There's no availability and there's no forecasted availability. Anything that's under construction is already spoken for. Yeah. He said, you know, there just isn't. And, and quite frankly, they're running out of decent land to build on. Well, they're running out of permitting. I mean, yeah. uh, you know, California's, and the NIMBYs and yeah. the, the warehouse moratoriums and all those things. It's just kind of coming to, to roost. And so, you know, while I think a lot of people felt like Southern California would ease at some point, I don't know that that's true anymore. I, I, the, 
people I talk to, and again, I talk to people that are way smarter than me that say it's just, you know, there's all the indicators say no. Now, some of these other outliers, you know, I think you and I have talked before, you know, you have your major markets, right? The I call them the primary distribution points, which mm-hmm. in my brain are, you know, long, you know, Southern California, Chicago, the Lehigh Valley, Pennsylvania, that area there, Pennsylvania, you know, a little bit New York, New Jersey, but, you know, I really like that Lehigh Valley area. I mean, if you if you were going to only have one warehouse in the United States, I would have it one of those three markets, mm-hmm. you know. And so, um, and then you get your secondary markets, you know, Kansas City, St. Louis, Indianapolis, Dallas, um, Memphis. I know it torques people that thinks Memphis should be a primary. It's not, uh, not, <laughs> not in my brain. Um, Atlanta. You know, the, to me, those are all secondary markets. Phoenix, um, Nevada, uh, Phoenix, Vegas. Vegas. You know, I I actually put Phoenix and Vegas in tertiary. I don't even think I'd put them secondary. Uh, I really wouldn't. I mean, and again, and, and that's a big generalization. You know, it really depends on what you're distributing and how you're distributing it. Well, if, if you're doing parcel 100% B2C, yeah. yeah, then Phoenix and Vegas make a little more sense. Uh, but if you're doing mainline distribution, retail type distribution, where you need LTL and truckload, yep. those become problematic. You, you know, you got to look for that east and west and north and south, you know, corridors to, to run out of. So then my question becomes, I mean, as long as Southern California stays extremely tight, then I mean, your next closest markets are Phoenix and, and uh, Vegas. Yeah, Phoenix, Vegas, you've got, you know, you're going to start seeing some movement in the Central Valley of California. Right. You know, move up there. And they've got that, uh, the new inland port that was just approved, yeah. you know, a few months ago. Yeah, we'll see how that plays out. But, um, yeah, I mean, so you'll see that. You'll see more into Phoenix and, and Vegas. I think, I think you're going to see more into Phoenix first. I mean, Vegas seems to be you know, struggling to to get buildings built over there. Um, you know, a lot of pent up demand in Vegas and Right. Well the thing know. the thing I think Phoenix and <clears throat> even Tucson has going for it is proximity to Mexico. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And and yeah. the more nearshoring you get, the more that reliable that becomes. And and quite frankly, coming across in the Gallus area, you know, is way easier than coming up through, you know, San Ysidro or the Otay Mesa crossing. Mm-hmm. So way easier to get into Phoenix and go through Nogales than it is to come up through San Diego through either Otay or San Ysidro, right? So yeah, the, you're, and you're absolutely right. I mean, Phoenix is a great market if you're coming up out of Mexico. Um, you know, the dre into there is expensive, and again, it kind of comes back to there's not a lot going back. And right, they used to have a big yard there, um, Hanjin when Hanjin was. You know, still a steamship line. You know, they were terminating boxes over there because there was so much waste paper coming out of Phoenix, going uh, going uh, abroad. But ever since China quit taking our waste paper, that, that market's kind of dried up. Mm. But um, but no, I mean, I you're you're spot on. And again, you know, you generalize, I generalize, and say, okay, these markets are great. But again. Goes to you got to look at what your specific needs are. I mean, again, if you're if you're doing B to C, you know, you, you you know one of these secondary markets were great for you because 
pricing is usually a little more accommodating. And if I'm shipping out parcel, who as long as I'm close to an airport, you know, right? Who really cares? Um, you know, that's where you're. You know, you know, you, then you just start looking at population trends and where can I be? You know, so um, Vegas makes a decent, you know, sense. And Phoenix makes good sense. Indianapolis, uh, I like Kansas City, St. Louis. I think those are both great markets. Right. Um, you know, so you, you look at what you're doing specifically versus, you know, just generalize. But the other thing is most, a lot of people, a lot of companies don't have the sophistication to split inventory. Right. It takes a lot of sophistication to split inventory across the country. Um, and uh, you, you, you got to relook at that. So you're only going to have one warehouse. You want to be in the most cost-effective you know, place you can be. Yep. Really enjoy that perspective. I want to switch gears a little bit. Okay. So when you launched, what year was it that you launched Pacific Mountain? 2009. Okay, so 2009. From 2009, when you got going, when did you really start seeing some of the big changes in how people were operating or have tried to operate warehouses? Um, what have been some, I mean, I know that there's, of course, the Amazon effect that enabled um, third-party sellers and everybody to be an entrepreneur with much, <laughs> right. you know, much less uh, of, a, of a barrier to entry. What have been some of the changes, I guess, you've seen in the last 10, 15 years? Well, I mean, you know, it, you go through these cycles, right? So... I, uh, I used to always jokingly say, you know, when I first got in the business, you know, the, uh, uh, shipping a case was shipping a gross. And most people don't even know what a gross is anymore. You know, and the you know, first thing you saw over the last 15 years was how that the shippable unit size has shrunk so much. You know, the, you know, as retailers got rid of their back rooms, they didn't want, a, you know, they didn't want 12, they didn't want 144 for sure. They wanted just enough to fit on the shelf, right? So just enough to fit on the shelf, that's it. And so, you you know, one thing you saw just in warehousing in general was that pack size, you know, reduce. And then you get B2C comes along and now you you only want to ship one of them, right? And you want to repack it, you know, even. So, you know, there's just this big shift, big shift in, you know, you, know, you went from truckload to LTL to... You know, uh, like early on when I was first in the business, you know, it was really rare to ship less than a pallet. You know, if a retailer was going to buy a pallet, I mean, they need to buy at least a pallet's worth. You know, and um, and even before that, you know, it was buy a truckload worth. You know, then okay, I'll let you buy a pallet's worth, and now then a case worth or or layers worth. You know, we used to have layer limits. You had to buy an entire layer. And now it's, can I buy one of those? You know, and, and so, you know, that's a been a big change, right? And then how, where else, particularly, we'll just focus on the third party side of it. You know, you had a lot of, a lot of people have gotten in the business and, and, you know, third party logistics, you know, you've got everything from the GXOs and NFIs of the world to the, you know, you know, Bob and Tom's warehouse, you know. Bob and Tom were truckers who had some customers say, hey, can you store this stuff for us? Yeah, sure. You mm-hmm. know, and and they're running it with a yellow notepad and and you know, shipping orders out. You know, so you know, you have this gamut. Now, come about two thousand 
Well, I call it about 2014 when you really saw this surge of these new, you know, um, you know, fulfillment houses, you know, you know, kind of following that, that model of, you know, one price, here it is, we'll process it no matter what kind of thing. And there's really, you know, it's funny when I first started the company, I got a lot of advice from people who said, you got to do e-commerce, 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 e-commerce. So I was very fortunate. I knew some guys and I traveled around and went to a few different e-commerce warehouses and talked to them. They were owners and taught them what they thought. And and the thing was, all of them said, hey, can you teach us how to do retail compliance stuff? Because <laughs> we're not making any money at this e-commerce thing. Um, you know, it's it's a very tricky business model to do straight e-commerce. Um, and so uh, I think there are a lot of people in that space. I think there's a lot of people in that space that don't make money. You know, and the people that do make money are making it on the arbitrage off of parcel rates because you got some crazy parcel volume or there's some parcel deal. Um, you know, but that, you know, that's, you know, still a very, very strong market. But But what you look at, that's still, I mean, all the e-commerce, you know, the fulfillment is still less than, I think today, it's still less than 22% of the total distribution market. So you've got this whole, you know, you know, more than two-thirds of the market is still retail distribution, you know. And, and, and that comes in different phases now. Now with the, you know, Amazon FBA, you're still shipping it's like shipping retail compliant, but you're shipping to Amazon for e-commerce fulfillment, but you're just fulfilling their warehouse, you know? And so it's still LTL, it's still pallets and still, you know, but the makeup of those are very different than they were before. You know, a lot of case pick, a lot of each pick still, even in that, even in that retail distribution, you're still doing a lot of, a lot of each and a lot of handling. Uh, Robotics have come a long way. In the last 15 years, you're seeing more and more of that, particularly in the 3PL space, a lot of the autonomous bots that, you know, two-person and two, two, you know, either product-to-person or person-to-product kind of thing. Um, you know, so that's, you know, very flexible. It's better than conveyors in a lot of cases, particularly in 3PL, because you get a lot more flexibility. I think this is an interesting point here because, you know, just to say it a little bit more blatantly, everything here, it's not replacing workers. It's reducing, you can reduce your workforce to a potent, to a, to an extent, but this is it's more about, about productivity. Yeah. This is about augmentation. More, right. More yeah. Than replacement. And, and, and I think that you're, you're right, Mark, that's a, a really good point to make. And, and it's one of my soapbox items is that, look, you know, 30, 25 years ago, we were talking about how there was going to be this gap in labor when all the baby boomers retired. Mm-hmm. And now, not just the baby boomers, but you got the, whatever, Gen Y, I don't know. I keep, I get lost in all those. I think it's X, Y, Z. Yeah, whatever. Yeah. So, you know, and millennials and all this other stuff. But but we knew that there was going to be a labor shortage because the baby boomers didn't have any kids. Right. You know, so we knew that there was going to be a labor gap. 25 years ago, we said that. And I think the first, I can remember the first conference I was in, they were talking about how are we going to deal with this labor gap that's going to happen. Now, the, the miss was most people thought that was 2030, 2035. That was always the conversation. But now this COVID comes along, 
and it ex- exacerbates the whole issue. You know, a lot of early retirements, people getting out of the workforce, and now so you have a low workforce participation rate along with this labor gap. So this idea that automation is going to replace everybody is insane. It's it's barely barely going to help make up for the gap in labor shortage that's already there mm-hmm. by making people more productive. And, and quite frankly, you know, I heard, heard someone say the other night at, a, at a, an event, reduce the suck in the building, right? Mm-hmm. So make the work suck less. Yeah. You know, so it's going to, it's going to help and augment the worker and help them be more productive and, and take some of the more, we'll call mundane tasks out of the way. Right. You know, so this idea that it's going to replace workers is crazy. If anything, it's going to increase the number of higher paying jobs because now someone's got to work on them. Yep. And someone's got to program those silly things. They don't just, you know, they're not programmed themselves yet. Exactly. And so it's interesting that the first economically viable robot that Boston Dynamics came out with was Stretch. The, uh, I think that's what they're calling the, the container unloader. Yep. Which is using suction technology and can, I mean, and... Of in, in any warehouse, I feel like I would prefer to sweep the floors than unload a container. <laughs> You're not alone. I, I mean, You're not alone. Yeah. And I mean, and, and I've, I've been in the can before you have, I mean, it is, that is, that is a hard job. I don't care. You know, it, there's, it, there's no reducing the suck in that one. That's right. And so to have this robot come in and augment the workforce, I mean, they still, I still they think. They still got to sort it. They're still going to have to do, they're still probably going to have to. You know, in a lot of cases, palletize it and sort Correct. it and and label it and, and receive it. I mean, but uh, unwedging that top oh, carton gosh, yeah. off, the, you know, yeah. at the top from the top it's of the container. It's pretty crazy. It is. Yeah. So it's interesting. And I, I find with the automation that, that what if, you know, I went to Modex, I think it was in March, I believe mm, it was yeah. in, uh, in Atlanta. And the thing I find very interesting is that everybody is focused on the automation around the individual pick or bin pick. Nobody's focusing on the actual automation around pallets. Mm-hmm. And so when, you know, in, in warehousing, I think there are a couple tenants, maximize your cube. Uh, so use as much possible space as you can use, you know, floor to ceiling, wall to wall. And then also you want to reduce the amount of walking for, for your yeah. employees. Travel time. Travel time. And that's what a lot of those kind of like Segway looking bots, I think Six River Systems. Um, yeah, like, Six yeah. River, there's a bunch of them. There's yeah. a bunch of them. Get fetch, robotics. Right. But what's interesting is is you don't see people, very many companies trying to eliminate aisles, trying to, uh, it's like those those certainly help with the amount that you can, the amount of, like the amount of walking that's happening in your building. And maybe your aisles can go a little bit smaller. You can have now a lot more uh, levels to your pallets, but there's still a significant amount of space that's left. Yep. And I've, I've always been surprised that there's not more automation around the actual pallet and the, at the carton and uh, around the carton side of things. Yeah. I mean, you see that like in the grocery industry, they've got some pretty neat automation stuff at the pallet level. Uh, there's some of those autonomous bots that, uh, you know, you can, um, you know, they'll they'll go as far as loading a loading a pallet on a truck. You know, they've got conveyor tops and they'll slide the pallet right off the top. Mm. And there's some of that. Um, that's expensive though, still. And and you got to have the right size building. You know, that's the other thing. You know, a lot of this automation. You know, it's, 
it's about getting the right circumstance, the right customer, the right you know setup to use it. Um, but you know, so much of the automation. Then you go to the automation that is, in my mind, you know, semi useless. You know, you, I've been to. I'll leave their name out of it. A really highly automated warehouse, and they have auto tapers, and then they had five people with tape guns in their hands going around fixing the <laughs> the boxes coming out of the auto tapers and. Yeah, you know, it's like what the what is that? So oh, we just we can't keep mechanics and gotta adjust these things. And, okay, so why don't you just have people taping them then? Yeah, you know, and and auto labelers and some of those same issues. And you know, it, I, I'm I'm against automation for the sake of automation. I right. like automation that works and automation that you know. That's why the autonomous bots are nice because they're kind of like a conveyor, but they're more flexible mm-hmm. because. I can change the pattern. I can send them wherever I want. I don't have this big monument thing that's in the way. A conveyor. Um, they're pretty good. In fact, I saw one, a demonstration one the other day. It was a, a trash bot. And so what they were doing was they were working in an area that had a lot of, they were detrashing this stuff and, and repacking. And they had a bin on it. And, and you throw it in the bin and the thing understands when the bin's full. And it goes to the dumpster, dumps it, and comes right back, you know, automatically. Don't have, no one has to engage in anything. And so no longer on uh, at 3 p.m. do you have the two guys that are going around. Right, right. This one bins. just yeah. goes and does it. It knows when it's full and, and, and dumps it. So there's a lot of really cool, unique things, you know, in that environment that, again, reduce the suck, you know, but... You know, go to some of these highly automated warehouses that Amazon operates, and they say, "Wow, this is one of our most automated facilities, and it only has 800 people that work here." Okay, I mean, okay, how automated is it? I mean, it, it, you know, distribution is still going to require people to be involved at some point, right? Um, you know, we're just not to that point. But again, you know, you look at the labor shortages that are today. I think what they say yesterday, 10 million jobs unfilled nationwide. So you need the automation to fill that gap. Yep. To enhance it. So let's just, uh, let's say you're planning, you've got a 10-year plan. Mm -hmm. You don't have Pacific Mountain Logistics, but you've got a box. How big is the box? How are you going to build it out? And how are you, what what kind of customer set are you going to put in there? Like how, how do you, how do you go from an empty box to, a business that you think is your ideal mix based on all of your experience? Well, I mean, you know, I think the ideal box is at, you know, 200, 250,000 square feet. Um, if you're starting off, I mean, if you've sure. got scale, you might go to 350, you know, but I, I've found that everything over 350, you know, there's some diminishing returns there. But 250 to 300 probably, if I was, you know, you know, you know, start fresh and start over. I mean, that was probably where to be. I would, I would have a, you know, a mix of clients that are primarily omni-channel. You know, I, I don't, I, I just don't like the, you know, from a profitability standpoint, a business standpoint, the pure B to C players. There's just too much volatility in that market and too much commoditization in that market. So it's really tough to be consistently profitable with its only B2C. So I like the, you know, call them omni-channel or, you know, supportive e-commerce, whatever you want to call it. But, and we have a, 
you know, I have plenty of those clients now that are shipping big box retailers or drop shipping, you know, through Amazon, they're shipping to Amazon and they're doing their own B2C, you know, that, that multifaceted client, that's mm-hmm. what you're looking for. Um, you know, you, you know, the Holy Grail is counter cyclical business, you know, patio furniture, you know, in the spring and, and uh, coats and, and uh, jackets in the, in the fall kind of thing. You know, so you, you're always looking for those counter cyclical clients. I like, you know, I, I kind of fell into it, but you know, it's, uh, it's a food component and it gives you, you know, that year round cash flow, year round business. Mm-hmm. Uh, yep. Also forces you to keep your warehouse clean. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, so I'm a big fan of that. But, um, you know, those omni channel clients, that's what you're, I'm looking for. I'm looking for those that, you know, and also you want that wraparound. You want a client that I can help them with their transportation. I can help them with their, you know, their, all their different services they need, you know, and you're trying to wrap around that client as much as you can. So, in, in that vein, once you've got your warehousing piece taken care of within, and I know you're such a fan of very narrow aisle racking. <laughs> that stuff. So, okay. So this is a question. I mean, if, if you, if the idea is to maximize the cube, why don't you do it by having narrow, more narrow aisles? It, it, again, I go back to, I want that mix of omni-channel. Right? Okay. So omni-channel, you know, retail, they're going to turn. It's going to be higher velocity. The very narrow aisle is just not conducive to high velocity uh, unless it's completely automated, you know? So, um, you know, I call them turtle trucks. Those turret trucks, they're just not very fast or can't move a lot of freight in the very narrow aisle. Um, you know, you you pick up maybe, you know, 15, you know, if you're in a 40-foot Clarice building, you know, you you may pick up an extra 20%, you know, storage, um, but what does that cost you in labor? Yeah. You know, that labor component's not going away. And to me, very narrow aisle. Unless, you know, and you go back to, I don't want a client that stores or stuff. I want clients that turn. But if I'm a, say, you know, if I've got 150,000 SKUs and I'm storing, you know, less than half a case of every SKU, it may be very narrow all works. But in that case, um, I think you would almost want to go with something like one of the solutions like the modular storage-based mm-hmm. thing, like AutoStore, for instance. Yeah, yep, exactly. They would be, I mean, in that, you, you're not going to get better compression than that. You're not going to get better space utilization. No. And, but if I'm, a, if I'm a logistics knucklehead starting to start a 3PL, you know, those things require a lot of capital investment. They do. And uh, while they're, they're really good, and if I'm a shipper and I can guarantee I've got volume on those that fits those for mm-hmm. evermore, that's great. But if I'm a 3PL and you signed a three-year deal with me and I'm going to invest, you know, a million and a half dollars in a, in a modular system, $2 million, you know, more likely, um, you know, that payback can, you know, can be crucial. Mm-hmm. You know, so you got to look at it that way too. It's from from a business standpoint, from a, you know entrepreneurial standpoint. You know, what's my biggest payback? You know, and and labor is a consistent cost I'm going to have. You yep. know, I can I can set my pricing so the building pays for itself. I got that's not that hard to do, um, but if I put a very narrow aisle, it's really tough to relay a warehouse and the labor expense to me outweighs the space you gain. Right. 
So I've, I've looked fairly extensively into it and you're not far off. Uh, 27% is, is what you're supposed to gain. Mm. And over a 10, I mean, that's looking at a 10,000 uh, square foot block, uh, as for instance, it would allow you to put, let's say if you could get 100 pallets in there, now you can get 127. Um, so, I mean, to your point, it, it helps, but at, you know, what are the, what are the downsides? And I think you, you summed them up very well. Um, so then as we look in, all right, so you've got your customers now. The next question was, what's the first wraparound service you put around your warehouse, your storage, your in and out? Well, I mean, I think the, you know, the first thing you do is you got to get that, you know, software integration with them, right? Mm-hmm. So you want that hook in into a client. You want, you want your software to be fully integrated. Yes, you know? absolutely. I mean, that's, to me, that's the first and foremost, and, you know, some people skirt around that and, and don't force that, but you got to force that, make sure that, and, you know, and, and that is a service and that is something that, you know, some people just aren't very good at making sure it happens. And then, and then you go for the transportation. Got it. And LTL, FTL, or does it matter? All of it. I mean, whatever they're doing, you know, drayage, you know, out of the port, you know, if they don't have door to door contracts, if they have door to port or wherever they have, I mean, you know, inbound, I want to handle their inbound and I want to handle all their outbound I can. You know, it becomes difficult, you know, some of these clients, you know, like Amazon and so on, you know, they're managing their own transportation to collect freight, but all that discretionary freight, I want all of it. So what's interesting about about the Amazon thing you bring up, and this is, this is we've learned, um, so we've got some customers that use, you know, our third party, we'll work with Global Trans, we'll work with CH Robinson, whoever it may be, to gain, um, you know, to get a you know, full truckload from here to ONT8, for instance. And the real, it's like the prices aren't too different just right off the cuff, like when you look at them. But where the customers really end up getting hosed is detention fees at Amazon. <laughs> because yeah. if you're doing a full truckload, mm-hmm. it is almost unheard of that they're going to get unloaded at the time that they're supposed to get unloaded and they're not going to have detention time. And so, but whereas you use that, if a customer uses Amazon partner transportation, it's the, the big blue truck, they don't get charged attention time. Amazon understands that this is the rate. And so it's, there's this very, very interesting, I mean, it's like... Well, they're trying to force you into using their... Uh, of course they are. Yeah. You know, I mean, and, you know, if I were them, I'd probably do the same thing. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, I mean, it's, it's evil genius smart. It really is. <laughs> you know, I mean, so... Um, you know, the, there's always those risks, yeah. you know, and you want to do the right thing by your client. Of course. But, you know, the more you can wrap around, you know, the better you can get. Yeah. And, and again, also, you know, forget the, just the business side of it. The more you wrap around, the more you understand your client, the easier it is for you to help them. Mm-hmm. Easier it is for you to work through the problems together and understanding what their issues are. And, and so, you know, the, the upside for the client is now you're more invested in them than you would have been otherwise. Right. And, and understanding every facet of their business, you know, so, you know, we, we even try to get in on the steamship line stuff if we can, mm. you know, through our partner, you know, freight forwarder partners. So, you know, again, the more, you know, the, the more you can help them. Right. So, what is the very first, and I mean, I'm, this can be very light automation. 
what's the very first piece of automation, whether it's pallet wrapping machines, whether it's uh, anything. I mean, I, I hate pallet wrapping machines. Yeah. Yeah. Because unless you're going to have 20 of them, 30 of them, you know, everybody's got to drive to a specific point. Mm. And, you know, unless you're doing something that requires really heavy wrap, you know, uh, I've found most hand wrap can, can compete. Um, and it's flexible and it's, you know, wherever you want to be, you know, the automation piece, I think that gets overlooked is the data automation, you know, the making sure that your WMS is doing everything you can do, you know, RF guns in the warehouse and scanning things in and out of location, not, you know, limiting all those manual events that happen, scanning onto a truck, you know, uh, cameras on trucks. So, you know, I can prove that I loaded this, loaded this time. And then, you know, uh, I think cameras on, on trucks now is a big deal. And so that's just aims down at every single uh-huh. when something backs up? Yeah, so, well, on the inside too. So on the inside, being able to see in that truck and say, look, this time this truck was here and I loaded it, I scanned it on, and here's a picture of me putting it on. Yeah. So that's, that's that might be a better, that's, that's so in the... In the nuts and bolts, that might be better to talk about af- offline. Yeah, but uh, but but you know, automation. You know, first off, data automation, right? Systematic automation. You know, and then you know, then you start looking at things like box erectors. If you're doing a lot of a lot of repack, you're you you start talking about the autonomous bots. I think to me, they they lead the you know they lead the pack in their their flexibility. You know, so I have 15 of them. And on Monday, I need all 15. On Tuesday, I only turn on eight of them. On Wednesday, I turn on seven of them. And, you know, and, and they give you that bandwidth, you know, and, and travel time is a, is a eater, you know, and, you know, and, and anytime someone travels outside their area, then it's never as simple as just travel out and travel back. You know, they're going to see a friend. They're going to stop off the restroom. They're going to, you know, there's all those things, those little minor productivity eaters that are in that. But if you keep them in their work area and the bots are doing all the traveling back and forth, I mean, that's, that's a big productivity game. Yeah. What separates a good warehouse from a great warehouse? You know, uh, you know it sounds silly to say this, but, you know, organization, you know, really does having a plan know where things are and having, you know, putting things away with a plan, um, clean warehouse. You know, I always say that you can't tell if things are wrong, if everything, you know, um, if everything isn't clean, you know, in a warehouse, everything should have a place and it should be in its place. And when I walk a warehouse, it should be very easy to tell if something's out of place. Mm. You know, and if everything's put away like it's supposed to be, everything is where it's supposed to be. It's very easy to tell when things are askew, and 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 so the great warehouses, you know, have. And I'll go back to this: it's the people. You know, the great warehouses have good people that question why is that there? Why is that there? You know, there's only two safe places for for freight in a location and on a truck. Yeah, and everything in between. You know, things happen and things go wrong, and so. You know, you need to have a clean, organized warehouse so that when your supervisor, your manager, whoever's walking the building, it's easy to see something out of place and you have people that question it. Why is that out of place? 
Right. And so to me, that's the biggest delta between a good warehouse and a great warehouse is a great warehouse stays clean and organized. People, you know, don't accept things out of place and they question when things are out of place. Um, you know, a, a good warehouse, eh, they, they, they try. Yeah. You know, and, and to me, and, and again, it's the simple things, you know, it's, uh, I had a mentor of mine tell me once, it's never the elephants that get you, it's the gnats. You know, it's the little things that you let slide and you just let slide and let slide. They, they eventually suck the blood out of you. I think there are t- in, this, in this vein and all of our previous conversations, there are two big things that have come that are kind of in this, like uh, on this topic. One of which you said, it's like, especially as we go into a re- potentially a recession and, and really more as you established, maybe a normalization. Um, but you always make your biggest detrimental mistakes when everything is slow. Yeah, that's, absolutely. Yeah. And then the other thing that you've, all, you've, you've always told me is uh, so few operators actually understand their costs. Right. You've got to understand your costs. You got to, I mean, you got to live it and breathe it yeah. and understand every, every, every penny that's spent out there, you better know it and understand it. And particularly when it's going to slow down because, you know, things happen. I mean, everything is cyclical. I don't care. You know, you, it's, you know, it's all saying it's never as good as you think it is. It's never as bad as you think it right. is. Right. So, and, and, and we've been riding a high for the last couple of years. I mean, even through COVID and mm-hmm. all that. I mean, you know, again, I, that, that government money, you know, it's floating out there. But um, as we slide back down, I mean, you, you're fine as long as two things. One, you didn't get drunk on that free money and, and spend it willy nilly. Yeah. Uh, and and secondly, you know your costs, and you can understand as you ratchet down as volume slows, you know where the pinch points are and where the things you know the discretionary money is and how to control it, and take it out, and you know what your profitability is per client. I mean, that's the other thing; it's really key, particularly in the three PL world when you have multiple clients in a building. It's that's probably the holy grail is making sure that you know what clients are profitable and, and tracking that all the time. Because you got to remember, you know, you have several micro economies in your building. Each one of those clients is fighting their own battles with their sales and what they're doing. And if, if you don't watch that and stay on top of that, you know, next thing you know, now they're unprofitable because they've changed or their clients have changed. Or, you know, their, their sales have changed. They're not turning like they were and, and if you're not watching it all the time, you know, it can get away from you really quickly. And next thing you know, that's impacting your bottom line because you weren't walking, watching what they were doing. So right. that's really important that understanding your costs and understanding how that's in fact affecting each one of your clients individually. Mm. Okay. So, and I'll, I'll say this can be the last question. Uh, <laughs> Looking into your crystal ball, the next five years, what are we in? What are we in for? You know, I would say that um, it's good to be in logistics. I mean, I think the industry is really, to me, you know, it's really funny. You know, when I first, you know, for the first probably twenty years of my career, I spent, you know, people asking what I did. I spent the next thirty minutes trying to explain it to them. <laughs> you know, um, and uh, so you know. I, I jokingly say logistics finally got sexy, 
You know, so now that they, I can't remember last time they turned on the news, they didn't say supply chain at least once in the, in the telecast. So, you know, I think logistics is a good space to be in as particularly as retail morphs. I mean, I, th- I think the death of brick and mortar is widely overstated. And I think that's uh, brick and mortar retail is not dead by any stretch. Um, but, you know, the emphasis on logistics and the emphasis on how things get to where they are is it, that's, I don't think that's fallen out of focus anytime soon. So it's a good time to be in the industry. It's a good time, you know, from a career standpoint. Um, from a business standpoint, I think over the next five years, it's going to continue to morph. Um, automation become more and more of a factor. Um, you're going to see, you know, it, you know, there's always cost realizations, right? So I always say that the cycle is, you know, that everybody's trying to cover their balance sheet. And the next thing you know, everybody's trying to spend because they got too much money on their balance sheet, you know, and and so you'll see this ebb and flow of of outsourcing and sourcing of logistics. But you know, I think as you move forward, and particularly with this, you know, still a large number of people working remotely, yep. uh, the reticence to bring logistics back in house. I just don't. I don't see that, and I've seen some telltale signs of people that are trying to push it away, push it away. They don't, they don't want that, you know, they don't want that liability on their own. They want somebody else doing it. So I think you'll see continued growth on the 3PL side. You'll see more consolidation. You know, you're going to see the bigger guys gobbling up the smaller guys. You know, that, that trend I don't think is going to stop anytime soon. Um, but I think the next five years, normalization of the economy um, you know, higher interest rates will stick around for a few years, you know, these two or three, which I don't know that that's a bad thing. Again, the drunk on low money, on, on, on cheap money, I don't know that that drives the best uh, practices, sure. you know, businesses. I think, you know, you'll, I think the next couple of years, you'll see some weeding out of some of your bad actors and the guys that just don't run quality companies. I think you'll see some of that. Um, and that slack will be picked up by the better operators. Yep. Uh, I think some of these, I call them money eaters. These, some of these startups that are out there, quote unquote, you know, you know, changing the landscape or, you know, or disruptors. I think those will disappear, you know, as people are going to, as money's not cheap anymore. I think these guys out there that are just eating up money from people, I think they'll, there'll be some consolidation in that environment and, a lot of those guys will go the the way of the dodo bird. They probably all went VNA too. Probably all went VNA. That's their problem <laughs> right there. But yeah. I mean, I think that's what you're going to see the next five years. I would be remiss. And so I lied. That's not my last question. This will be okay. one of my last questions. Uh, Amazon warehousing and distribution came out or they're in the process of rolling out. Uh, I don't know a ton of details, but it seems like, yeah, they're trying to... Yeah, 3PL. Yeah, effectively. And uh, I don't know how many hundreds of millions or how many millions of square feet they have, but I'm guessing it's all inland. I'm mm-hmm. guessing uh, it's still not going to be cheap. No. And it seems like to me, I don't know what your read is on it, but it seems like this is them overcommitting to a lot of square footage. And then now what in the heck do we do with it? Right. You know, there was an article that came out, you know, a few weeks ago that said they were going to send all this Square footage is sublease. Um, and uh, and that was, you know, you talk to the guys in the know and they went, no, 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 they're not. 
you know, basically they overbuilt and and it's really funny. I had a great perspective. I'll, I'll leave his name out of it, but he's a big player in the real estate market and does a lot of business with Amazon. He said they overbuilt their labor bandwidth. So they had buildings, but they just didn't have the bandwidth on the management side to get them open. Mm. You know, they were they were behind recruiting and management. And they just didn't have the bandwidth to open them. So it wasn't so much just a pullback of space, but it was also a pullback of resources. So they were, basically, they felt like they were spread too thin. Right. And so, you know, I'll, you know, Amazon's Amazon. And, you know, I, I you know, I'm critical enough of them in general. But, you know, I think if they get into the 3PL space, it'll be, uh, you know, the one thing Bezos set up is the siloed sections of, you know, everything is a silo. So it's easy to try it and unplug it. You know, my, my opinion is they'll, they'll try that and they'll unplug it pretty quick because they'll find that, you know, they don't have that product profitability to offset their, their logistics inexperience. Uh, I, I'm sorry, they're not, you know, there's a lot of people out there that have forgotten more about logistics than Amazon knows. Yeah. You know, I, 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 I mean, Walmart could teach them a lot about logistics. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure they could. And, and I don't. I don't see them as some crazy, you know, awesome logistics provider. And so I think they get into the 3PL space and they'll find that they're they're not as good as they think they are. Well, I think that's a great place to, uh, to end it. Uh, I've, thank you so much. Oh, thanks for having me. This yeah. is awesome. This is, this is fun. I'm, I'm looking forward to you know, get more into it. Good. I'll pick your brain on some other people I should probably talk to. Yeah, and, that'd be awesome. Yeah. I mean, it's, I, I love it because we're able to kind of get in the nuts and the bolts and yeah, get Summit Hogue on this thing. What's that? Gotta get Summit Hogue on this thing. Oh, he's, he's coming next. There you go. Yeah. yeah. Summit, Summit's got a great perspective. All right. He does. Uh, he does. That, that's how you and I met. Yep. Smart kid. And, and, uh, no, it's, you know, I mean, and, and I think this is a great format and, there's a lot of smart guys out there doing this and gals that are, you know, way smarter than me that, um, you know, that look at all this from different angles. You got to look at the real estate guys, you got to look at the development guys, you got to look mm-hmm. at the 3PL guys, and you got to look at the shipper guys. So they got a very different perspective too. Yeah. Well, it's a pleasure. I really appreciate always. it. It's always good to talk to a fellow Texan. <laughs> Absolutely. All right. With that said, uh, thank you. Thank you.